You're listening to a recent sermon from a Covenant Church worship experience. For more information, you can find us online at covenantchurch.us. The book of Proverbs tells us that there is a clear path to live a life filled with wisdom and a clear path to live a life filled with evil and foolishness. This message is from part three of our series, Practical Wisdom, where we are learning that the path we choose decides the legacy we leave. And now here is our lead pastor, Pastor Travis Davenport. Once again, good morning. My name is Travis and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Covenant Church. We're in week three of the series that we've entitled Practical Wisdom. And uh, today is going to be exciting. Are you, are you with me? Are we, I always like to gauge, are you with me today? Are we going to do this together? Yes or no? Yes? Okay. Well, hopefully we'll get there along the way. All right. Quick question. First off, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of something called the butterfly effect? Any of you? Yes, I'm not talking about Ashton Kutcher's uh, amazing dramatic performance, okay? Um, The butterfly effect, yeah. Well, the butterfly effect was a doctoral thesis, for those of you who don't know, uh, written in 1963 by a man named Edward Lorenz. And it was presented to the New York Academy of Science, and it was laughed out of the building. In fact, they said it was crazy. Now, what's what's so crazy about it is that the butterfly effect stated that a butterfly on one side of of, of planet Earth could flap its wings, and because of it flapping its wings, molecules would, would move, and they would influence other molecules, which would then move, and then other molecules would move, thereby eventually having the possibility of creating a hurricane on the other side of the world. So a butterfly could flap its wings on one side of the world and create a hurricane on the other side of the planet. This is the butterfly effect, and it was nuts. But it was interesting. And because it was so interesting, it hung around for a long time. It, it, be, it became, you know, something that was popping up in urban legends and, and movies and, and books and, and the such. Until the mid-90s, when physics professors got together and they actually proved that the butterfly effect was accurate and viable. So much so that they said it was exact. It was science. And it was true every single time. And not just with butterflies, right? It didn't just work with butterflies. In fact, it worked with any form of moving matter, including people. This is so true, in fact, that they actually gave the butterfly effect an actual name. They, they, they actually gave it the status of a law and gave it a new name. And the name was this, the law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions. The law of sensitive dependence upon con- initial conditions. And so tonight, if, you're, if you have a date tonight, gentlemen, and you want to try and, you know, just lay it down a little bit, um, just talk about the butterfly effect. And then drop that, you know, uh, initial dependence on uh, initial, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, do it better than that. I'm married, so it doesn't really matter for me. Um, the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions, and then just say, it's just the butterfly effect, girl. And then, because girls love butterflies. It'll work, just try it. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, hard cut. Today, we're going to be talking about decisions. And uh, you say, well, what did that have to do with decisions? Nothing. I was just trying to get you interested in the message. No, it has a lot, a lot to do with it, because Here's the point. All of our, much like the butterfly effect, all of our decisions have consequences. All of them. Positive or negative. Small decisions in the beginning lead to large differences in the end. The butterfly effect. 
And when it comes to making decisions, Scripture is very clear that there are three distinct categories of decisions, three distinct categories which all decisions fall into. Number one is wise decisions. Turn to your neighbor and say wise decisions. Number two are foolish decisions. Look at your other neighbor and say foolish decisions. And then in your scariest, deepest, most evil voice, look at your other neighbor, which you're wondering who that would be, and say evil decisions. There you go. There you go. So these are the three categories. Let's jump into Scripture. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2. If you would follow along, if you don't want to, that's fine. We have the words on the screen. If you're driving in a car, please do neither one of opening up or watching your mobile device. Just listen along. But in Proverbs chapter 2, it says this. Discretion, it's wise choices. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guide you. Number one, wise decisions. If you're looking for a definition, it will be this. Wise decisions recognize the presence and rights of God at all times whether felt or not. Sometimes we want to make a decision based on whether we feel God and what Scripture is telling, or what, I'm sorry, what Scripture is telling us and what this, this definition is indicating is that wise decisions recognize the presence and rights of God at all times, whether we feel it or not. Now, as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, um, it should be our goal to consistently make wise decisions, yes? And making wise decisions... Um, is our goal, but the problem is it's difficult. Oftentimes, making wise decisions will force us to live a life that's balanced, balanced and, and a life of sacrifice. We have to live with balance and sacrifice if we're going to make wise decisions. And, and this is tough because it's not always fun. It's not. It's not fun necessarily to live a life of sacrifice. It's, it's not necessarily fun to live a life of, of balance, but wisdom calls us to make these choices if we're going to live with wisdom itself. They're not always the decisions you want to make. Often they can be the decisions you don't want to make because they will impact your lifestyle. But, but think about this. A couple of weeks ago we opened up this series talking about the yara, this fear, this, this, this paralyzing, terrifying, crippling, uh, I'm falling over like a dead man kind of understanding of fear of God. And so if you were, if you were in God's presence, when he said no, you would say no as well. If you were in God's presence, if we properly understood God's presence and the fear of the Lord making our decisions, we would never say yes to one of God's no's, and we would never say no to one of God's yeses, and that is wisdom. We know this. But oftentimes in our own life, let's be real, we choose emotion over wisdom, don't we? Yeah, we've all got relationships like that. <laughs> Emotion over wisdom. In fact, I can give you an example uh, because sometimes, you know, wisdom doesn't align with our emotion. I want my kids to be happy. I do, you know. I want them to be happy. I want them to be satisfied. I want them to be fulfilled in being my kids. I really do. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't pan out to be that way, right? Any of you parents in here kind of feel that with me? Uh, a couple months ago, uh, we celebrated the, the, the pagan holiday Halloween uh, by having our children dress up like, like superheroes and send them through the neighborhood. And, and so I, I literally grew up, there was some sarcasm there, I, I literally grew up um, not being allowed to trick-or-treat um, unless I dressed up like a Bible character. <laughs> True story. Like, no, no, you can't unless you dress up like Moses. Then totally cool, get all the licorice you want, okay? 
So every year, that's what I did. I dressed up like a different Bible character. One year was David. Uh, I had a little slingshot, you know. One year I was Samson. I had the guns, you know, like not guns, but like guns, you know. Um, and then one year my mom and dad were like, all right, we're going to extend the rules a little bit. You can dress up like an anonymous superhero, but it kind of has to resemble a Bible character. And we're like, that is so unclear. I don't know what you're talking about. So I kind of dressed up like Adam from Adam and Eve. Um, you're like, that, did that take very long to get dressed? No. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, but, but what happened was my mom stapled, tr- a true story, stapled leaves all over a kind of like green felt pelt that she had designed for me and just stapled in. And I was allowed to be called Leaf Man. That was what I went as. I went to two houses and quit and went home. <laughs> it's so sad. It's true. You're crying, but... Yeah, it, it hurts my heart to even talk about it. But anyway, um, not so for our kids. We live in the middle of a neighborhood where there's nine bajillion people. And, you know, I used to be happy back in my day. Some of you, some of you people from the 90s, maybe you can, you can jive with me here. Um, I was happy to come home with like a, like a couple like fun-sized candy bars, which, by the way, not so fun, really badly named. Fun size would be larger than the original candy bar. <laughs> I was happy to come back with a couple of those and maybe like an apple or something. My kids straight up walk up to houses, ring doorbells like a boss, and if you're not showing up with a king-size Kit Kat, they'll just walk away. They'll hold out their bag and they're like, oh, hello, kids. And they're like, oh, we'll go to the next house. <laughs> you believe that guy. You know, what in the world, you know? We have a lot of kids, and they all have bags, and they also have the parents' bag that you take trick-or-treating. You know, like this one's for mom and dad, you know. You always have that one, and... Um, you don't really tell people the door that, but that's what it is. And you come home, and here's the point of it. You come home, and you, and you take, we take all the candy. We've got five kids, so they all take out their bags filled with candy, and they just dump them in the middle of the ground. And there is literally so much candy, it's like the, like the, like the ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we got kids swimming in licorice and, and uh, Milky Ways. It's just unbelievable. And then inevitably something happens. They all start to say, mine, 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 mine. And they start divvying up the candy. And then the next thing happens, what? They start eating it. They just start devouring this candy. And you're like, no, 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 stop. And you've always got to be the bad guy. You've always got to step in and say, stop. You can have two pieces today. You can have two pieces tomorrow. And that's how it's going to go until all the candy's gone. And they're like, that's going to take forever. And like kind of under your breath, you lean over to your wife and like, they don't know how much mom and dad are going to eat when they're asleep, so they don't really know. See, if, if emotionally, if I was emotionally driven, I would say like, oh, kids, go ahead. Just eat it. Just eat, just eat a bucket and a half of candy tonight. That's totally fine. But wisdom says no. And I, and, I, and I love my kids. That's why I enforce wisdom. That's, that's why I use wisdom. Even though they might not like the decision, even though they might not like it, they, they definitely would understand from the effect point of view. Um, when I think of somebody scripturally who demonstrated wisdom on a consistent basis, I obviously think of Jesus. I think of Jesus Christ, the, the places that he went, the, the people that he talked to, how he talked to them, the decisions that he made. Jesus was constantly a person marked by wisdom and, and wise decisions. But here's the fact. Just because Jesus made wise decisions didn't mean that his decisions were popular. And, and just rewind for a moment because maybe you're saying like, well, well, hold on. Like, I get that Jesus made wise choices and wise decisions, but that's kind of not fair. Like, he was God. Like, 
Okay, and I would say that's a fair argument. That is. But understanding of Scripture also points to the fact that not only was Jesus fully God, he was also fully what? Human. And so that means this. Listen, church, at any point in time, Jesus could have made an evil decision. At any point in time, Jesus could have made a foolish choice. At any time, Jesus could have sinned, but he didn't. Ever. Not even once. Jesus consistently had a life marked with wisdom, even when it wasn't popular. Now, here's just one example. Turn over to John chapter 6. We're going to start in 53. It says this, and we'll give context afterwards here. But Scripture says this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. This is interesting. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So let's put this into context, okay? Jesus, a rabbi, has people following him. And all of a sudden, Jesus is now finding himself out, out in the middle of the countryside and out in the middle of these synagogues. And there's crowds. And I mean crowds. I'm not talking about like 20 or 30 people. There's tens of thousands of people following Jesus, clinging to his every word. Now, as an original disciple, this would have been something you would have longed for. You understand that? This would have been something where you would have been like, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm a part of this. My rabbi is like a crazy celebrity. Look at this following. He's changing the world. All these people are coming. Something's really happening. There's something big taking place. And then Jesus stands up in the middle of thousands of people to speak wisdom. And what does he say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, go home. And you can just imagine, almost like a cartoon character, the jaw-dropping uh, experience these disciples had. And they look at each other and like, what did he just say? Because everybody leaves. Like people in the crowd are looking around like, is it what? Like vampires aren't even created yet. Who is this guy? What are we talking about here? And Jesus is like, no, seriously. And he pushes further. Unless you eat of my flesh, which is the bread, unless you drink of my blood, you cannot have any part of me. And the disciples, even, if you continue reading down through John 6, they're like, this is a hard teaching. Who's even going to respond or listen to this? And everybody leaves, except who? The 12 disciples. And Jesus walks over, and you can continue reading this at some point in John 6, maybe in your Sea Life group or otherwise. Um, Jesus walks over to them, and he looks at the 12 disciples, who are the only ones left. Think about tens of thousands of people who have all left, and now just these 12. And Jesus looks at them and he says, why are you still here? Are you going to stay? And of course, Peter, of course, Peter. Peter looks at him and he says, where are we going to go? Who else are we going to follow? You have the words of life. What was Jesus doing here? Was this a wise decision? Of course it was. See, what Jesus was doing was he was thinning out the crowd. Jesus didn't want people who were going to follow him with half their heart to follow him at all. 
And so rather, he would do a hard teaching, something like this. Jesus wasn't asking people to take bites out of his arm. That's not what he was asking. Jesus was metaphorically saying that we have to eat of the nature of Christ. His blood is going to be the thing that covers our lives and forgives us of our sin. But these people heard what they wanted to hear, and they got mad, and and they left because they were only half-heartedly following. And Jesus understood that half-hearted following brings half-hearted obedience. And half-hearted obedience is what? Disobedience. So Jesus intentionally thins out the crowd. Wise choice, wise decision. Jesus constantly was a person marked by wise decision. And this is why he left behind a legacy of wisdom for others to follow. Number two. Second category, write this down, foolish decisions. Proverbs 19, verse 2 says this, Desire without knowledge is not good. Say, not good. good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses the way. They miss the way. Now, if wise decisions recognize the presence and rights of God at all times, foolish decisions ignore the presence and rights of God to have precedence at all times. Now, notice that there's two things Scripture in Proverbs 19.2 says that are good indicators of a foolish decision. Number one, ignorance. And number two, what? Haste. Number one, ignorance. And number two, haste. Normally, if you make a decision in ignorance and haste, it is not a wise decision. It's a foolish decision. Here's the point. You have to sit down and think about the decision that you're making before you make the decision. And not just the decision, but the outcome of the decision. And not just the outcome of the decision for you, but also the outcome of the decision for the people around you. How does it affect your workplace? How does it affect your family? How does it affect your lifestyle? How does it affect the people that you are connected to? This is what it means to make a wise choice. And when I, when I think of foolish decisions... There's really, like, very quickly one character in Scripture, one individual who comes to mind, and his name is Samson. We all know Samson? No Samson? Samson is like this, this almost nearly, like, superhuman, strong man that God appoints a judge over Israel. Uh, at, at this point in time when Samson was alive, uh, Israel didn't have any kings. They, they were ruled by judges, and judges were supposed to be the mouthpiece of God. So they were the voice of God to the people. They would deliberate and they would deliver wise words. Well, the problem is Samson was a fool and his life was made by foolish decisions. Sure, he was awesome. I mean, he was awesome. Scripture talks about the fact that he killed lions with his bare hands. Awesome. The Bible talks about the fact that he killed an entire army with the jawbone of a donkey. Equally awesome. The Bible also mentions the fact that upon, uh, upon some of the last moments of his life, he stretches out his hands and in between these pillars where he's been taken captive, and he tears down an entire temple, killing about 4,000 people. Equally amazingly awesome. This dude is awesome, but he makes foolish decisions. Uh, let's just check one of them out. Judges chapter 14. Starting in verse 1 says this, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Uh-oh. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Okay, pause. Okay. you got to kind of understand something here. Um, that's not normal. Don't institute that into your dating life. Like, oh, that's how you get ladies. you got to get your parents to get them for you. And go home and be like, I saw a girl over at AMC. Go get her for me, Mom. It's not going to work. 
uh, probably unless you have a very dysfunctional family. In that case, go for it. Um, you also have to understand Samson was, as strong as he was, he was also kind of a mama's boy. Okay? So he didn't, we think this big, strong, barrel-chested, you know, six-pack-looking guy who doesn't wear a shirt, you know, walks in and just says, I saw a woman, Father, get her for me. No, it probably read something a little more like this. Being a mama's boy. Said this. Hey. That's how it starts. Saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Can, can you go get her for me? Can, can you go get her for me as my wife? Please, because I, I don't want to do it. Could you go do it for me? That's what it was like, right? And his father and his mother said, and this is equally soft, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among the people that you can take for a wife? And Samson's like, uh. So he says, uh, uh, but I want that one. That's what he, that's what he basically Go ahead, No, I don't want those ones. I want that one. Ever take a kid Christmas shopping, let them pick out their own gifts? Don't ever do it. Don't ever. Just rely on Santa. Don't ever do that. Hey, what would you like? I want that one. This one? No, that one. That's what Samson's doing here. He, he's being kind of wimpy. He says, I want that one. And his parents even said, like, that's not smart. Like, she's from the Philistines. Now, this may not seem like a foolish decision to you because, like I said, maybe you have your parents pick out your spouse. Um, your dating companions. Or you might actually say, like, well, I don't feel like this is fair. Like, that's not Samson's fault. You love who you love. You know, you love who you love, who you love. And he walked downtown, and he's hanging around Timnah, and he sees a Philistine, and he's struck with a beauty. That's not his fault, Travis. I mean, but if he, if he loved her, he should be able to love her. He fell in love. What was he supposed to do? But listen, there's a lot going on here in this passage that maybe you don't even realize. Samson was a judge of Israel. Israel and the Philistines were enemies. They were at battle together. And you're like, no, 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 that makes it even better. Forbidden love. <laughs> but here's the problem. It's not like West Side Story. Unless there's an off-Broadway version where Riff and the Jets are sacrificing people. Because that's exactly what the Philistines did. That was the type of people they were. They sacrificed people, their children, to a god, a false god named Dagon. They also had ritual prostitution and self-mutilation. And this was the person that Samson was like, oh yeah, that's, that's what I want in my life. Foolish decision. But he gets her anyway. And the end of this is that Samson loses the girl altogether. When does he lose her? Not on the third date, not on the fourth. But this woman actually leaves Samson for another man at their wedding party. Fantastic. You'd think Samson would learn his lesson, but he didn't. In fact, he fell in love again with another Philistine woman. This girl's name was Delilah. And we all know how that turned out, right? She cuts his hair, loses strength, betrays him, deceives him, gets him captured. Ultimately, she gets his eyes gouged and burned out with a fire poker, and he's made a slave for the rest of his life. To say that Samson had a little bit of a bumpy love career is to put it mildly. Samson was a man who was consistently and constantly marked by making foolish decisions. He ignored the presence of God in his life and ignored wise counsel. So if wise choices recognize the presence of God at all times, and foolish choices ignore the presence and the right of God to have precedence at all times in decisions, then what are evil decisions? What are they? Number three, evil decisions. Proverbs chapter 1 says this. Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 10. My son... 
If sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. That's a good term right there. Their feet run to evil. And they make haste to shed blood. If you're looking for a definition, I would say this. Evil decisions are decisions that stand in open defiance to God, His will, and His direction. Evil decisions are decisions that stand, once again, in open defiance to God, His will, and His direction. Now, when we think of evil decisions, we think of evil people, don't we? We think of people like Hitler, Pol Pot, Ted Bundy, Stalin, Voldemort, things, people like this. People who are just inherently evil, apparently. But here's the truth. Don't miss this, church. Listen. Even those closest to Jesus Christ are capable of making evil decisions. Even us sitting in this room, waking up early, coming to church, battling our children all the way here, right? Sitting here today, followers of Christ, we are capable of making evil decisions. Even those who care about the truth can do that. Just because you know Jesus doesn't mean you aren't out of the reach of making an evil decision. In fact, we as followers of of Jesus make evil decisions daily, don't we? Not too many amens on that one. We do. Think about it. If evil decisions are, follow this logic. Now listen, listen, don't miss this. If evil decisions are decisions that stand in open defiance to God, whenever we choose to do what we want to do versus what God asks us to do or commands us to do, we're making an evil decision. That's called sin. Anytime that we sin, we are making an evil choice. We're saying, I want what I want. I don't want what you want. I'm choosing my way over your way. We as Christians struggle with this daily, don't we? Amen? We do. We do. Even the closest, the closest to Christ can struggle with making evil decisions. Now, here's where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drill down a little bit deeper. This is going to hopefully hurt a little bit. Are you, are you ready for that? Yes? Yeah? 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 Say, come on, bring it on. Say, just bring it on. All right, let's just get it over with. This is going to hurt. I hope it does. I hope it stings a little bit. And I hope that we learn from Scripture and what it says. Because here's how it applies to our lives. In Ephesians chapter 5, 18, uh, it says that Christians shouldn't be drunk. Yet Christians do it. Open defiance. Scripture's clear in Hebrews 13, verse 4, that sex outside of marriage is a sin. All sex, any sex, any type of sex, outside the parameters of biblical marriage is sin. And yet Christians do it. Scripture is clear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, that lust after another person is adultery. And yet pornography is rampant in our churches, in our homes, with fathers, with, with young children, fathers with teenage daughters addicted to pornography. We have junior high boys and girls addicted to pornography. We raise our hands on Sunday morning, we sing of God's goodness, and then we go home. And it's another story. 
Don't tell me that we as Christians are not able and capable of making evil decisions. We do it daily. Those closest to Jesus are capable of making those decisions. In fact, when I think of evil decisions, I think of Judas. We all know Judas. Judas is the one who Jesus handpicked to follow him. He said, you know, I want you to follow me, you follow me. And he called Judas and said, follow me. He called Judas to be his disciple, to watch Jesus, to walk with him. Judas walked with Jesus for years. Judas saw Jesus raise people from the dead. Judas saw Jesus heal the blind and, 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 and heal the lame. Judas saw Jesus walk on water and saw Peter's feeble attempt to do it and then probably laughed at him when he started to drown. Let's, let's be honest. Judas saw amazing things, yet in the end, Judas made an evil decision. What did he choose? He chose to betray the Son of God with the knowledge that he was the Son of God. It's not foolish. It was evil. In fact, Jesus even gave him opportunities. In John 13, we read, Jesus gave him opportunities to get out of making that decision. But Judas chose to go ahead and make the decision. He betrays Jesus. The authorities uh, arrest Jesus. They try him. They beat him within an inch of his life, and, and ultimately they murder him through crucifixion. But what happened to Judas? What of his evil decision? What consequence did he have? Well, Matthew chapter 27 says this, starting in verse 3. Listen now. Listen closely. Then when Judas, his betrayer, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. By the way, pause. 30 pieces of silver, that's what Judas was paid to betray Jesus. And Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it for yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed, and he went and hanged himself. Judas goes and takes his own life because of such guilt and remorse. Verse 6, don't miss this. But the chief priest taking the piece of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, don't miss what happens here. Judas tried to alleviate his guilt. He obviously felt bad for what he had done when he saw the consequences. And so he tries to alleviate his guilt by, by taking the money back. He goes to the high priest, hey, here's your money back. I can't take this. Like, can you release Jesus? I feel bad about it. Here's the money back. And, and the priests are like, what's that to us? Get out of here. And Judas goes and he takes his own life. But don't miss. Don't miss what happens now. Look at this. Isn't this interesting? It actually says that in this field that Judas hung himself, the priests, they couldn't collect the money because they, they counted it as blood money. So what they did was they took the very money that Judas had gotten to deceive and, and betray Jesus, rather, to betray Jesus. They took that money and went and bought the very field that Judas killed himself in. Judas did not leave a legacy of wisdom. He did not leave a life that was marked with foolishness. He, mar he lived a life marked with evil. When we talk about Judas to this day, people don't refer to him as a fool. People refer to him as what? Evil. A legacy of evil. A lifetime of evil. Here's the point. An evil decision will always have an evil consequence. Would you write that down? An evil decision will always have an evil consequence. Always. 
And it doesn't matter how much remorse you feel about something, about your decision. Even if you feel remorse, you will still suffer the consequence. Wise, foolish, evil. So, here's the question. What if there was a way? Follow me now. What if there was a way that we could constantly make wise decisions? I mean, what if there was a way that we could, like, hack the system? You know what I'm talking about? What if there was a way that we could ensure that every decision we made was not just wise, but was in God's will, and that we could know that we were scripturally, biblically, uh, like, making the wisest decisions as possible? Well, there is. There is. And it's simple, but it's hard to follow through. I call it the wisdom filter. I know, kind of a corny name, but it's exactly what it is. And it goes like this, and I would encourage you to write this down and discuss it further in your Sea Life groups this week. But it works like this. Number one, when you have a decision to make, the first place you go is to God. You pray about it. Scripturally, we would use this word, beseech. You beseech the throne of God. You say, here's my decision. God, I don't know necessarily what I want to do. Here's what I might want to do, but here's the other option. I want what you want. Please show me. In that moment, we're surrendering ourselves, and in that moment, we are uh, laying down our rights, and we are showing God what his rights are in our life. Does that make sense? And we're praying. We're not just saying, like, show me what to do. And, and uh, you know, like, here, here's, can I just pause? Can I, do, can I just say this, too? We're praying incorrectly. If you say, like, God, just open the doors, that's, that is, that's wrong. That's not the way you want to pray. God, would you just, oh, well, I thought, God, you know, if, if there's one door closed, like, he's going to open a window. Should I pray for a window to be open instead of a door? No, that's not what I'm saying, okay? If you feel like God has called you to do something, say, God, I feel like you've called me to do this. I'm going to do it. And if you don't want me to do it, slam the door in my face. That's a better way to pray. That's a better way. That's a more uh, faith-based approach, okay? But when we, when we pray, first and foremost, we need to beseech the throne of God. We need to come to him. Here's my decision. Secondly, number two, the second step, there's only three. Second step, we search God's word. We open God's word, and we look for directives. Now, the amazing thing about God's word is you're not just reading a book. You're reading God's words. And scripturally, we know that the Bible itself is alive, it's living, it's active, it's inerrant. And when you accept Jesus Christ, we know that the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us. Amen? And here's one of the jobs, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. This is so cool. When we read Scripture, the Holy Spirit, one of its jobs is to illuminate Scripture to us. What this means is this. We could read the same passage of Scripture at different points in our life, and it means the same thing, but it can influence us in different ways to make decisions. That's God's word, relevant, active, inerrant in our life, speaking to us. So number two, after we pray about it, number two, we open up God's word and we look for God to tell us what to do. And then number three, after you feel like you relatively know what you're going to do, here's number three, you take it to wise counsel and you surrender it to them. Wise counsel, these are people who have, on a consistent basis, made wise decisions, not just your friend like, oh yeah, they're a smart person, yeah. They, they saved money the other day. They're a wise person. They're, no, this is somebody who has a life marked with wisdom over and over and over. Probably older than yourself. Probably in a different life stage. You need to surround yourself with wise people and you take your decision. Now, here's the tough part. 
The decision that they come up with, these Christ-following, God-fearing people, wise people that you have around you, the decision that they come up with or deliberate to you is probably going to be wisdom. Do you choose to follow it or not? If you choose to follow it, most likely you will choose the way of wisdom. If you choose to ignore it, then most likely you will make a foolish decision. If you choose to ignore that whole structure like, ah, that's a lot of time, I don't want to, I don't want then you will most likely make an evil decision because you've ignored the whole process. A wise person understands that making a wise decision is a process. And this applies to everything. Listen to me. This applies to you getting into a relationship or getting out of one. This applies to you purchasing a new car. This applies to what kind of house you should buy. This, this applies to when you have kids or, or if you have kids or how many kids you should have or how many kids, how many kids you shouldn't have. Or it's, it, it applies to your job. It applies to everything. This is the wisdom filter. If we would institute this into our lives, we could consistently make wise choice after wise choice after wise choice. Now, our band's going to come up I'm going to close with this in a moment. Because some of you right here this morning, you're like, you're with me. You're really engaged. I can tell. But I can also tell that for a lot of us, we walked in this morning, let's be honest, with a lot of bad decisions that we've made in our life. And we call them bad. I can call them bad because they're either A, foolish, or B, evil. Let's just be honest, a lot of us have a lot of baggage from the past, don't we? A lot of hurt, a lot of guilt, a lot of pain. Some of it our fault, some of it other people's fault. And you hear a sermon like this and you're like, that's great, that's great, okay, cool. But what does that have to do with me? Well, Travis, I've, I've, this just proves what I know. I make bad decisions. I've made a lot of bad decisions. I've, I've met a lot of bad people and I'm, I'm just, I, don't, I don't even know. How to make wise decisions anymore. I don't even have wise people surrounding me. The people that I would take my decisions to, they'd tell me the bad decisions to make and then laugh about it. Listen to me, listen. If you are within the sound of my voice today, it is not too late for you to make the wisest choice that you could ever make. And that is to give your life and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Listen, friend, your life may be marked by bad decisions, one after another. You have maybe made your fair of evil decisions, your fair share of, of foolish decisions, but today, coming to Jesus Christ is the best and wisest decision that you could ever make. Start now. Start fresh. Thank you for listening to this message from part three of our series, Practical Wisdom at Covenant Church. We hope you've been impacted by what you've heard today. Visit us online at covenantchurch.us where you can invest in life change through giving or find more impactful sermon audio just like this.